Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Amy Westervelt, founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network, where she has executive produced more than a dozen podcasts, including her own show, Drilled. Amy's also co-host with Marianise Hegler of the podcast Hot Take. She is the author of the book, Forget Having It All, How America Messed Up Motherhood and How to Fix It. And she's an award-winning journalist who's contributed to publications including the Washington Post, the New York Times, and The Guardian. Of all the voices in the climate movement, Amy is one of our favorites, someone who brings a grounding point of view and a refreshing optimism despite the realities in front of us. We're really excited to speak with her today. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Amy. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So we're talking to you on November 10th. It's a week after Election Day here in the U.S. Wanted to begin with just how are you feeling about the election results? Well, I was feeling somewhat relieved on like Friday last week. And then this week, I feel like we're watching a slow motion coup, albeit an incredibly incompetent and bumbling one. <laughs> um, but still, it's happening nonetheless. And I feel like the the fact that, you know, Republicans are making what seems to be a, a calculated choice to back Trump, probably to make sure they don't lose any voters in that Georgia runoff election, is just really concerning. It's, mm-hmm. it's concerning and, you know, the kind of constant disinformation around the election is concerning. Yeah. And then on top of that, like, I I think I texted a friend during the election last week that I'm so annoyed that I have to be anxiety ridden on behalf of Joe Biden, of all people, Mm. um, who I'm not even excited about as a candidate. So, yeah. Well, if you could have President-elect Biden's ear right now, Mm -hmm. what would you tell him that he should prioritize when it comes to handling the climate crisis? What could he tackle first when he gets into the White House? Well, you know, whether or not he has the Senate will decide a lot of things. But even irrespective of that, I think there are a few things he can do sort of unilaterally. He can by executive order, undo a lot of the things that Trump did by executive order. You know, there was all this talk about a fracking ban or not a fracking ban in the election. And I think people don't realize that, like, the way our laws are set up, a national fracking ban would be very hard to do because you'd have to change, like, how how the laws work. (laughs) Um, So in lieu of that, I think he could issue an executive order to get rid of the clean water exemption for fracking. Mm -hmm. He could make sure that FERC is actually enforcing FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, like the wonkiest and nerdiest of of agencies, um, (laughs) is actually enforcing the rules around pipelines and other energy projects, which they have basically refused to do in the Trump administration. So, yeah, there's a few of those kinds of things. I Mm. think also, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Supreme Court and the impact that, you know, Amy Coney Barrett will have. And a lot of people talking about the Massachusetts versus EPA case in particular, which is, you know, the case that sort of allowed the EPA to regulate climate in the first place. 
because climate was never included in the EPA's mandate when it was started. Mm. So there's some stuff there, too, where I'm like, well, could he, you know, expand the EPA's mandate? Or there's been some talk of him starting a climate agency. And while I don't think that, like, more government agencies is a solve to anything, it might be a solve to that. Mm. (laughs) And then also, he could not have fossil fuel people on his transition team or in his cabinet. Mm. That would be nice. I'm talking about Moniz. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I, want to bring up big oil, actually. You know, the Trump campaign was and the Republican Party is Mm -hmm. very pro big oil. Eric Trump even posted on Instagram just a week ago, never forget the horrible gas prices under Biden and Obama then versus now. With these two images, one showing the price at five twenty-one a gallon, the other at one sixty-one a gallon, as if this is like some justification of something. Ah, yeah. How do you view the link between the Trump White House, the Trump campaign, and these fossil fuel giants? Well, there's a few things. I mean, this is a big part of why I think it was important from a climate perspective to get Trump out of office, because not only is he not acting on climate, he's actually exacerbating climate change and massively expanding fossil fuel, you know, development and infrastructure and all of that stuff. So there's that. And then they've done stuff that just isn't even necessary from an energy or economic standpoint, too. You know, like opening up the Arctic for drilling is a good example. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are pretty sure that there's not even a great amount of oil reserves to drill for in the Arctic. (laughs) So even if you don't give a shit about anything else that's bad about drilling there, it doesn't even make sense from an energy perspective. Mm. So there were a lot of things like that where, I mean, fracking is another good example. You know, the Trump administration helped to bail out the fracking industry in a big way as part of the COVID relief. And like that industry has been cash flow negative its entire existence. So yeah, mm. there's there's a lot of that stuff. And then I do feel like there's a lot of really kind of old toxic ideas around the fossil fuel industry that are very much embodied by Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the fossil fuel industry spent a long time making itself sort of the center of this very macho, supremacist American identity. And uh, Trump is kind of kind of the epitome of that. Like, oh, we're the energy power of the world and all of that stuff. Yeah. And this goes back like a century. Like if you know, yeah. the early history of the automobile was built on this idea yes. of like masculine versus feminine. Yes, totally. In fact, it was um, Freud's double nephew, weird, who <laughs> <laughs> this guy, Edward Bernays, who like literally applied, yeah, like Freudian theory around phallic imagery Hmm. to make cars an extension of manhood in this like very weird way and like it worked Mm. (laughs) it's working still which is the disturbing part Mm -hmm. yeah although although we are moving into this you know what what some are calling the clean transition right with california um committing to this uh, electric vehicle sort of motivation what what is gonna sort of drive this? You know, there's a lot of talk about EVs right now, but they're heavily dependent upon metals. So outside of the big oil conversation, what do you think is possible in terms of terrestrial mining versus some of these ideas around polymetallic nodules on the seabed mm-hmm. to drive this clean transition into kind of the age of the metal? Yeah, I mean, I think that 
that actually we need to have a lot more conversations about that. I'm very concerned about the direction that lithium mining is going in. And honestly, it's like, we've been talking about that for 15, 20 years, and it's still not really been addressed. Yeah. And even with some of like the the deep sea mineral stuff and mining too, it's like, I, I don't know. I just, I'm very concerned. And this is why on Hot Take, maybe less so on Drilled, but on Hot Take, we talk a lot about the need to sort of change kind of the cultural mindset alongside the policies and the technology, because if we're just going to approach it with the same kind of resource extraction, colonial mindset, then we're going to have new problems mm-hmm. down the road. And and honestly, I haven't seen a good fix for what we do about the exploding need for lithium. There has been some work for a while on lithium recycling, and it's basically just been too expensive to justify in the past. So that might be something that scales up and becomes feasible, but I don't know. You know, it's, it's interesting a lot of what we're talking about here is choice under scarcity, right? What's the mm-hmm. what's the best way to go? And, you know, in many ways, Trump versus Biden was choice under scarcity. Totally. Um, <laughs> Biden is the lithium of presidential candidates. Uh, so maybe, you know, things, things, things will begin to move forward with an understanding of trade-offs. <laughs> I mean, I also think, too, like there's this huge, very unsexy thing that is still wildly untapped, which is efficiency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we still aren't like insulating homes properly yeah. or replacing pipes so they don't leak water constantly. Or, you know, it's like there's this whole huge universe of low hanging fruit that we haven't even begun to touch. Yes. And then moving forward into new technologies that, you know, when you think about nuclear and, and, and stuff, yeah. it's like so much of this is narrative driven, right? So mm-hmm. much of this is about disinformation and, and narrative. Which which leads me to wanting to talk to you about forgiveness, which you've written a lot about. Yeah. I was reading a recent tweet of yours where, you know, you, you said after kind of traveling around and, and, and speaking to all these forgiveness scholars, mm-hmm. what every expert said is that forgiveness does not mean you give up on justice. Right. Which I think is so profound to talk about in this moment yeah. right now. Yeah, because there's so many people that are like, oh, you have to just let it go, this and that. And I don't think they realize that that doesn't mean that you're sort of allowing that kind of behavior or condoning it. That's exactly what I wanted to get to. You know, like, how can we shift to a culture of forgiveness or where there is forgiveness, despite the trauma that a lot of people have felt in the last four years, and that half of the country is just starting to feel again now? Right. I do think accountability and forgiveness kind of need to go hand in hand. Mm. And it's interesting. I've had a few people reach out to me about Drilled and say that learning more about how massive and well-funded and powerful the disinformation apparatus is helped them have more empathy for people who are still sort of like parroting those talking points. Mm. And I do think actually on the political front too, having an understanding of, you know, if, if your entire news diet consists of Fox News and your Facebook feed, yeah, like you really genuinely believe that democracy is under attack, not by Trump, but against Trump. Mm-hmm. I do feel like kind of, and this is a big part of what a lot of the the forgiveness kind of research looks at is like the 
the ability to kind of understand where other people are coming from and why they might be behaving in the way that they're behaving sort of helps to diffuse some of the the active anger and resentment about it. Mm. And again, it doesn't mean, oh, I totally get it. So that's fine that they believe that way. It's more just... I get it, and therefore I can stop expecting them to behave wildly different until conditions change. <laughs> mm-hmm. right, like empathy is the driver for conflict resolution. Totally. I mean, we we saw this in tr- the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa in the '90s, exactly, which was a totally novel. I mean, Tutu pioneered this sort of idea, but healing a nation through this explicit kind of reckoning with the past. Yeah. This airing of the truth. Well, I mean, the key there is that I think is that that the truth part came first, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, even legally that people had to you know, testify in order to get amnesty. <laughs> which I, which I don't think a lot of people understand. Maybe you could help unpack that because I think that that history is really relevant to this moment right now. Yeah, there had been previous attempts at something like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in other countries, but a lot of people felt that amnesty was given to people too easily. It was sort of this rush to, you know, patch things up and move forward, right? Which is Mm -hmm. kind of like how I feel Democrats are talking about the country right now. Very much. And in apartheid South Africa, it was like, no, you can't be forgiven for something you haven't confessed, you know? And honestly... The forgiveness doesn't mean that much to the person receiving it if they haven't kind of said out loud what it is that they were complicit with. Mm -hmm. You know, if they don't see it, first of all, they don't think they need to be forgiven. You know, it just becomes like getting out of consequences in some way. It's not a real reconciliation. Mm. And then they don't feel like the thing they did has actually been absolved. So... I don't think it works on either side unless that piece is there, which is why I think the the disinformation thing is so important. Like people, honestly, I feel like somehow we need to like get rid of Fox News and pull the wool out from these people's eyes so they see what's actually been going on. And that the fact that they've been really kind of brainwashed and used, I don't know. I feel like without that, they will kind of continue to believe what they believe. And I don't want to overstate the fact and like, you know, absolve people of whatever they're bringing to the table when they're watching Fox News or listening to Trump. You know, there's mm. there's plenty of stuff that predates that too. But yeah, I just, I feel like if people aren't dealing with the same set of facts or context, then it's hard to even start to have that conversation. And and it gets so obfuscated now in that Trump is saying Fox blew the election for him, like it's their fault. So Fox becomes the enemy of Trump. <laughs> Honestly, that might be the only thing that shuts them down. <laughs> yeah, it's just so crazy. But, you know, um, it, it's just this idea of, of vindication or satisfaction. It's like, People on the left watching Trump suffer yeah. kind of isn't enough and doesn't no. really do anything. Right. Having Trump get up and say, no, I did put children in cages. Yeah. And this is wrong might change things. Right. Yeah. Which I don't, I mean, I don't think will ever happen with him. He's a pathological narcissist. So right. I don't know. I mean, maybe he might say he might like to avoid jail. I really hope that 
any kind of pardoning of him comes with this kind of truth and reconciliation commission <laughs> like yeah. approach where it's like, yeah, you can have amnesty, but you need to like own up to some stuff first. Yeah. But on a federal level, that's one thing, you know, if he, if he resigns and then Pence pardons him or whatever, this mm-hmm. a little play happens. It's irrelevant because as two New Yorkers sitting here talking to you, we're very proud of the legal work that the Southern district has been doing. And <laughs> he really can't, <laughs> he he really can't do much in the face of that. Yeah, that's very true. So it's going to be a very interesting period. But but my question for you at that, at that moment is like at a time where we're just so divided, Biden and Harris are projecting the strategy of togetherness. Mm-hmm. And we're all sort of looking at it like, what? Do you think they actually have a shot at success here? Or are we just too far apart ideologically as a country to actually come together out of this? I I just don't know. I really don't know. I do feel like I think there's a way to talk about certain progressive policies in a way that doesn't immediately ostracize anyone who's like even like center and to the right. Mm. Like, for example, you know, I'm into socialism. I like it. But like I know that my 70 year old boomer white mom will never understand that, like, socialism is not the same as communist Russia, Mm -hmm. you know? And why does she need to? All I need to do is talk to her about how it'd be great if the millions of people who don't have health care right now could have access to it. Yeah, sure. I feel like there's an insistence on rhetoric on all sides that is not helpful. Mm -hmm. So I do feel like there's maybe some progress that could be made in that realm, but I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like there is a significant portion of Trump's base who just straight up don't think that people of color and women and people of different sexual orientations should have the same rights as other people. And I'm not really sure what the compromise is there between people having human rights and not. You know, and on climate, too, it's like there's really not a lot of like gray area in the middle between doing what needs to be done and not doing anything or not doing enough. You know, unfortunately, we're at the point where incremental improvements just aren't going to cut it, you know, and we're at that point because we haven't done anything for 30, 40 years, partly to continue playing politics, So in some ways, like I I was talking last week about how I think Democrats need to close the the ruthlessness gap, which is not my term. That was coined by a sociologist, Drew Dellinger, Mm. and he is a scholar in residence at the MLK Institute in San Francisco. But yeah, I'm kind of like, you know, I do actually feel like the Democrats constantly capitulating tends to just fan the flames of this behavior on the Mm. right, too. Well, how different is it from Amy Comey Barrett saying, I'm certainly not a scientist. I mean, I've read things about climate change. I wouldn't say I have firm views on it. It's this this like, really? Are we really having this conversation? Can't we have some sense of realism here? Yeah, exactly. I think it's the difference between like the Four Seasons Philadelphia and Four Seasons Garden (laughs) of Lansky. Oh, man, that will never not be funny. Wedged in between a crematorium and a sex factory store. 
The ultimate American strip mall. So good. It's so, so good. With a convicted <laughs> sex offender speaking at the conference. I mean, it's so, that it was so indicative of the links that they will go to to avoid admitting any wrong, no matter how trivial. Mm-hmm. Can't admit a single tiny mistake. Oh, the Four Seasons was booked. We're going to have it here. <laughs> nope. Seemed like a good venue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. There's this thing where I feel like Democrats and environmentalists, too, for a long time have been very opposed to using, like, you know, the same tactics that the right uses. And I mean, the discussion around climate change is a perfect example. For years and years and years, it was like, no, no, no. You know, they're they're going with like the lizard brain stuff. We're going to stick to charts and numbers. Like, yeah, that doesn't fucking work. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're if you're like being the nice guy while the other guy is just punching you in the face. Mm-hmm. But it's also hard to create a dialogue when you describe an entire group of people as a basket full of deplorables. That's very true. Yes. It's like you got to find a, there has to be a line. And I, I wanted to bring up the idea of dialogue because it's so central to everything you do. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in 2018, you formed the podcast network Critical Frequency. And your tagline, if we can call it that, is the best story is the truth. Mm-hmm. So what, what attracted you to podcasting, to storytelling and dialogue? And, and, and where do you see this sort of podcast industry headed? Well, I actually got into podcasting because I was a print journalist forever and I was driving around listening to NPR and like having FOMO. You know, I was like, I wish I could do that. And then I thought, well, I probably could. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's a member station near me. So I... I sent them an email with the subject line, would you like an overaged intern? (laughs) They were like, actually, it's a lot harder for us to teach people how to do, how to be a reporter than, you know, how to use audio equipment. So Mm. like, sure. So I went in and I, um, I interned for a month or two and then I got a job at the Reno public radio station. (laughs) (laughs) I was like a community reporter, which was awesome because I had done mostly national news and, you know, written for national magazines and things Mm -hmm. like that. I had not done a lot of community reporting and it was really, fun. Um, especially in Reno of all places, it's like a bonkers bananas city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I was working there, I realized that, oh, radio reporters gather like four hours worth of tape for every four minute news feature. <laughs> and and most of the really interesting kind of character driven stuff gets cut out. So a friend of mine and I there started a podcast really just to use all of our extra tape Because, Mm. you know, like we were just as an example, we were doing a story on the Tesla Gigafactory and Mm. the guy who owns the land that the Tesla Gigafactory is built on also owns the largest brothel in the county. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like a fascinating guy. And so anyway, we're like this is a story that public radio doesn't want because they're like, we just want the facts, you know, but it's really entertaining. And Mm -hmm. because he basically had to, in order to make his dream of like building a tech industrial park in Nevada, he basically had to take on this brothel to keep the tax base of the County up to snuff. Wow. (laughs) So it's this whole, in this very weird way, like, 
there would be no Tesla Gigafactory without this brothel. That is such an American story. Wow. Right. It's so, yeah. And so anyway, so we started a show called Range that was focused on that stuff. And then I don't know, about a year into it, I realized that, you know, between shows that I was making and shows that I was helping other people make, there was about half a dozen of them. And it was still early enough that you know, being a network got you more attention from the podcast apps than being a one-off show. So we sort of created the network really like on accident. Mm. Um, But then I also, you know, almost immediately was like, God, all the other networks are run by kind of like the exact same archetype. It's like a mid forties white guy who used to work at NPR and like, they're great. I love all the content, but You know, the whole thing about podcasting used to be that, you know, the barrier to entry was pretty low. So Mm -hmm. that sort of became our focus was really making sure that we as much as possible. I mean, you know, we're an independent and, and, you know, pretty scrappy outfit. Like Mm -hmm. I'm constantly sending out grant applications and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. But I wanted to kind of try to elbow some space for people who maybe didn't come from a public radio background and who maybe didn't live in New York or LA, maybe, uh, yeah, had no experience in media at all and things like that. Mm. Do you think podcasting is creating or helping really push dialogue forward in a way that before we had the sort of advent of podcasting when it was just terrestrial radio, maybe it wasn't happening as much as it is today. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. But I also, my, I've been meaning to write about this and I just need to like sit down and do it. I do. I am quite concerned that podcasting is also quickly becoming like the new Facebook where disinformation mm. is concerned. That's exactly my next question, which is like, oh, you know, I yeah. wanted to bring it like Spotify is becoming this monopolistic giant in the podcast space. Totally. And I was wondering, you know, do you think that there is a threat to independent journalists incapable of competing with them? Like will will Spotify's growth limit audience development and reach and mm-hmm. the potential for the kind of dialogue that we currently are seeing through podcasting. Yes. Hearing through podcasting, I should say. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a huge potential problem. I mean, Spotify already barely gives any sort of curatorial attention to non-Spotify or non-Gimlet podcasts. And I, I don't expect that that will get better as time goes on. And then that has kind of triggered, you know, I think some of the other apps feel like, well, maybe we shouldn't give as much space to other Mm -hmm. non-original podcasts either. And I don't know. I mean, Stitcher is still pretty good about it. Apple hasn't started their original thing yet, but I'm sure that that is forthcoming because, you know, the guy from Radio Public went there and then I suspect that will be like the next big industry announcement soon. Mm. I think it's a big problem for independent podcasters that are trying to find audience. And I also think that there's this way that podcasting has exploded into like a a sort of legit media channel without any of the responsibilities of a legit media channel. Mm. So like very few shows have fact checkers, very few shows even really think about fact checking. There is a huge amount of potential for for advertisers to 
put kind of anything they want into podcasts. It's not regulated. You know, when I asked NPR why oil companies, for example, were allowed to say things in their in NPR podcasts that they are not allowed to say on broadcast ads, their answer was it's not illegal. Mm. That is not an ethics policy. That's a Trump policy. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's not written anywhere. Exactly. So it's just like, okay, well, I this is very concerning because I, I'm hearing a lot of the same things from podcasters and podcast companies that we heard from Facebook five years ago right. about like, oh, it's not our responsibility. People can make up their own minds. We're just a platform. And, you know, streaming, of course, is having a huge impact on advertising. You know, how do you think streaming is going to change this sort of advertising model at large, like targeted ads through big data, that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I already feel like just in the last year, the whole podcast advertising thing has shifted a lot, you Mm -hmm. know, like where, I mean, just purely based on my own experience, it seems like they're starting to measure success slightly differently. So like, I don't know if you guys have seen this too, but for us, it's like, impressions instead of downloads now. And I I honestly don't understand what the difference is, but that's the words that they're using. And then I think people are skipping podcast ads more now Mm. than they were before. So I think in the early days, it was sort of like, and by early days, I mean like two years ago, three years Mm. ago, you know, I think there was a certain amount of you know, listeners feeling like, oh, I'm going to, I'll listen to the ad to support this independent podcast maker. Right. But if it's like, You know, I'm listening to Joe Rogan's podcast, which I would never do, but um, (laughs) or like, you know, maybe one of like the Crooked Media podcasts, for example. It's like Mm -hmm. these guys are have like shitloads of money. I don't need to listen to ads for them, you know, and I think that kind of thinking is is kind of invaded across the board. So, yeah, Mm. I don't I don't really know where the where the advertising space is headed. I wanted to mention both Drilled and Hot Take you're on season five of Drilled and mm-hmm. Hot Take launched a year ago and takes this critical but but still really you know constructive look at climate coverage and the climate crisis. What have been some of your big takeaways from your conversations and work on these shows? What for you has been the most meaningful to come out of the work? I mean, I, I came into this with a clear understanding that climate change was a very intersectional issue in that it it intersects with everything like the economy and history and gender and race and all these other things. But I feel like that has just been hammered home over and over again. Like there really isn't, I feel like I'm now at the point where I can't see any story and not immediately see the the climate angle on it, Mm -hmm. which is probably partly just because I'm immersed in it all the time and partly because of how the world has changed in the last few years. But I think there's a real need for media literacy in this country, you know, mm. and and just understanding sort of how the sausage gets made and, and like not in a navel gazing, you know, let's all sit around and talk about what the New York Times put out this week kind of way, but in a, a sort of, you know, here are the economic realities of media. Here are the, like, because of that, here are the people who tend to be working in media. And because of that, here are the stories that are getting covered and and the angle that, like, we have on them. And and that it's not this, like, objective, pristine thing. Mm -hmm. And that, like, you know, if journalists aren't covering something, it's not because they're 
choosing not to or their bosses wouldn't let them or, or like some nefarious thing. Sometimes it's that, but oftentimes it's just because they're doing like three jobs for the price of one and they missed it, you know, or maybe like your pitch sucked. Yeah. Yeah. There's (laughs) only so much airtime or so much print space. Right. I mean, another big thing that's changed is the merging of the sort of brand studio with oh god the media yeah. company which which i think there's actually multiple ways to do that but mm-hmm. one has to come before the other i think but yeah in terms of the intersection of media and big oil mm-hmm. you know the new york times the washington post both have brand studios that have worked for big oil multiple times mm-hmm. the guardian in contrast refuses to run big oil ads so what role do media companies currently play in kind of furthering the goals of these companies like Shell and Chevron? Yeah. I think that before I wrote about it in The Nation, people were yeah. oblivious to the fact that The Washington Post and The New York Times were even doing this. And that was like, I don't know, two years ago. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And they've been doing it for a really long time. Yeah. And I think that, you know, they will jump up and down and say there's a huge division between, you know, editorial and, and advertising. And I think that's true internally. But what they don't understand is that readers don't see it that way, mm-hmm. that readers are just consuming it all at the same time and attributing roughly the same value to both. <laughs> yeah, because they're in the same container. Exactly. Part of the problem is the context, not necessarily who's making it. Exactly. Yeah. I remember being astounded when T-Brand kind of started and one of their first clients was Wendy's and they did this organic food campaign yes. that felt so out of touch for what mm-hmm. how the Times was actually covering our food systems. Right. And and they, you know, will say, well, we have to make money somehow, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, the reality is that the New York Times helped oil companies invent the advertorial in the first place. And now they've helped them to invent like the new version of it. And they should own that. (laughs) You know, it's like, look, make the decision that you want to make. And if you want to say that this is what you need to do for your bottom line, that's fine. But let's not pretend that you're not doing it. Yeah, let's make sure you're not the failing New York Times for real. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's like, look, I get it. You know, media is expensive and like it's hard to pay for stuff and whatever. And I, I, you know, I'm... I'm kind of on the fence about the Guardian's decision, although when we talked to the, I don't know if it was the CEO or the editor-in-chief there about their ads, she explained with, I thought, a pretty good explanation that, you know, with something like cars or planes or any other, you know, product that has a heavy carbon footprint, there is some kind of you know, selling a thing to consumers, but with fossil fuel ads, they're really just burnishing their brands and selling like kind of the idea that fossil fuels should exist. Mm. (laughs) And so they see it as more of like an advocacy campaign than a consumer product ad, Um, which is true. You know, it's not like anybody has brand loyalty to, you know, a particular type of gas. Right. I only get my gas from Chevron. (laughs) (laughs) I love that Tecron stuff. It's great. Side note, I recently learned that the the one in the middle is actually just a mix. It's not a separate gas. Amazing. (laughs) I just learned that. Wait, so they just put a little bit of that and a little bit of that. Yeah, it's like vanilla and chocolate swirl. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't realize that. But but before we leave big oil, uh, I did want to bring up Shell's Twitter poll 
um, <laughs> that came up recently where they said, what are you willing to change to help reduce emissions? Yeah. Which um, it didn't go so well for them. No. But 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 it did bring up a question because obviously I expected the answer from AOC and 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 everyone's outrage, which you know I thought was equally irresponsible to be honest. Because say we don't trust Shell and say we we think it's ridiculous that they would have the audacity to put it on us, but if they are in fact wanting to change for real business reasons, they just see a need to shift, yeah, and transcend from their kind of dark past. How do you think they could have more effectively approached this? Because I do think that there is a a possible positive angle to this. Yeah, I think they need to do that and then talk about it. That's mm. the main thing. Like they're they're putting out these ads and polls and all of this stuff and they're saying, "Well, we've committed to this and we've committed to that." Fine, but you haven't actually done anything. Mm. And you have a long history of actively undermining climate policy. Right. So yeah, we don't trust what you say anymore. We need to see what you're doing. Mm. So I think that that's kind of the answer is like, stop with the greenwashing, do the things and then report back on them. And we'll be very happy to like hear that. But like Mm. this putting the cart before the horse thing with their social media campaigns and stuff is like, it just seems it's hard to to not think it's more of the same because that's kind of what they've always done. Mm. So same with BP. Like I think BP actually is doing some new stuff. The biggest thing they've done, which I don't think they've even advertised is ditch their petrochemical business, Mm -hmm. which is a huge, huge deal. But you know, Someone leaked some stuff to me last month that includes a video of Bernard Looney saying, look, we're going to be in the oil and gas business for decades. How else are we going to pay our dividends? So, you know, it's hard to take it seriously when they then say we're we're getting into the hydrogen business. And it's like, OK, it's one percent of your earnings. Like, let's talk when it's 25 percent. Right. Then I would love to hear about it. But if it's less than one percent, go fuck yourselves. Mm. It'd be a good tweet. to to finish amy what's giving you the greatest hope right now like as we emerge out of 2020 out of this election cycle and eventually out of the pandemic where are you finding hope in like kind of two sort of opposite ends of the spectrum so like the the youth climate movement and the history of the civil rights movement i think that like you know there is a long history of people in social movements who are consistently f- losing battles but keeping at it because it's the right thing to do. And I think that's where the climate movement needs to be and I think that's where it's headed. And then, I mean, Generation Z is like totally the greatest generation. They're fucking awesome. They throw shade at these fossil fuel companies and politicians and whatever, like nobody else. I think they're the ones that are actually going to close this ruthlessness gap between the left and the right. And they're, they're not like rude and shitty and whatever. They're just like, you know, we know what needs to be done and we're not going to accept you guys pretending that you're doing anything less than what's necessary. Mm. And they're winning. I think the races that Sunrise and the Justice Dems decided to focus on in this election cycle, they won handily. And there was a noticeable difference. Like when they jumped in and decided to back Ed Markey, for example, they blew it out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're showing that they can have political wins. They're also showing that 
they they got behind Joe Biden when it was necessary. Mm. I think there's been this really false narrative about the progressive left and young voters in particular that like if they don't get their demands met, they won't turn out. And I think they disproved that this election, that they're quite pragmatic and that they are just like fight, fight, fight on all cylinders all the time. So that does give me some some hope. And also the thing that gives me the most hope about them is that they really walk the walk like they don't. They have very sort of like flat hierarchical structures in these youth organizations, too. Like they're very collaborative. They're not competitive with each other. They're genuinely like approaching their lives and their work with a different perspective than than previous generations. And and uh, I see a lot of people who are like millennial Gen X and older who might say that they you know, they think there are certain flaws with capitalism or there are certain flaws with competition or whatever, but they're so indoctrinated into it that they can't really operate in any other way. And I just don't see that with a lot of the youth activists. So Mm. it's really refreshing. (laughs) Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on today. We, We look forward to continuing to tune into Critical Frequency and all the work you're doing there. And uh, it's great having you on today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.